The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. And uh, one of the ways the world really works is that uh, people find themselves a religion. Very few people are truly atheistic. There are some, I even know one or two, but the overwhelming majority of people, when they abandon one religion, they usually adopt another, even though the religion they adopt is frequently camouflaged, seldom recognized for the religion that it really is. Now, what is it that defines a religion? Well, I've always had considerable difficulty understanding how Scientology is classified as a religion, because uh, the, the, the means by which Scientology obtained the classification for legal and tax purposes uh, was by arguing that they help people uh, get in touch with their true uh, non-material natures. They help people become aware of spiritual realities. Well, if that's what it takes, then welcome to the religion of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, because a frequent topic under discussion right here um, is that very one. In other words, I don't really think you need a religion to be aware that human beings are largely spiritual. It's something I've spoken of before. Uh, the, the very fact that we make decisions that have no economic sense. You know, the, the person, I used to say the woman, but now I'm only going to say the person who drives uh, to the other side of town to fill the car with gas because the gas is seven cents uh, a gallon less expensive there, when the cost of the gas to get to the other side of town and back uh, utterly wipes out any potential loss, any potential gain on that. Uh, there are people who do that anyways, right? That's just one example. There are many, many other examples that you and I do on a regular basis where we make decisions to do things that are not in our very best economic interests. And the answer that we, we give is that uh, money isn't everything. I'm willing to spend money in order to gain certain non-material benefits. And each and every one of us uh, have our own examples of where we do that. Uh, the very fact that we uh, depend on friendship, we need the love of other people, uh, all of these things are, are examples, and there are so many, many others, that we do, in fact, have a spiritual reality. So much so that uh, when I usually say that we are a combination of body and soul, uh, I'm often corrected with the words, and I think they're the words of C.S. Lewis, that uh, not that we are a body with a soul, but we are a soul uh, with a body. In other words, the critical part of us is actually our spiritual entity rather than our physical and material entity. And needless to say, I, I do agree that a strong case can be made for that very argument. So uh, what is what is a religion then? Well, I think by the correct definitions of a religion, I, I don't know that Scientology actually makes it, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, because secular fundamentalism definitely makes it. And that is exactly the, the point that we're uh, discussing today. Um, I had uh, said in last week's show, I'd spoken about the fact that uh, modern 
progressivism, uh, what passes for leftist politics, progressive politics, uh, the the whole political environment of uh, of of the aggressive left today, both in the United States and Europe, I argued that uh, it's much more than merely a, a sick, evil, and twisted pathology. Uh, it's it's not a political system anymore. It is actually an evil religion. Yes, not all religions are true. Not all religions are good. And uh, I felt that that this was one that wasn't. So, uh, what is it that makes a religion? Then a number of people asked me during the week, what is it? that makes a religion that you can actually claim that progressive politics is a religion much more than a uh, political dogma and the the answer i think is uh, several things first of all um there is a uh, an explicit deity right it's it's not a deity mentioned in vague terms um, because if that were the case, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a very fine organization, uh, would be a religion. It isn't, right? They speak of a higher power, but when you are willing to speak more explicitly about this outside force, uh, then that's one thing. Number two, and most importantly, it makes demands of you. And uh, that's another area in which Scientology fails the religion test, as far as I'm concerned, uh, because the 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 deity of of uh, of Scientology is loosely referred to, if at all, and it certainly makes no explicit demands on you, other other than being uh, you know a good human being and so on and so forth. But um, in, a, in a religion, the, the deity of a religion makes very specific demands, as it does in Islam, for instance. Right? Nobody can dispute that Islam is a religion. And so uh, that is the, uh, the second point. The third is a three-part, and perhaps the most important of all. A religion provides a picture of where we came from, what our ultimate destiny is, and what exactly we're supposed to be doing in the interim. That's what a religion does. And uh, the, uh, uh, the biblical religions of Judaism and Christianity do those things very explicitly. It, it always amuses me to, to realize that um, those questions, when you get right down to it, are, are, are very fundamental questions that relate to our identity in, in the deepest possible way, uh, in that I've always noticed that um, either little kids or, or people who are utterly uninhibited generally ask those questions. If you sit next to a stranger on a plane, you start talking, and, um, you know, generally what you're each trying to find out about each other is, you know, where are you from, where are you headed, and what do you do? I, what do you do? Um, with, with women, I usually add one more, and, uh, and that is, are you attached, right? Um, <laughs> in other words, if a man and a woman start talking, invariably, it may not come to the surface, the man may know that he has to watch his P's and Q's these days, but almost invariably one of the things that a man who's talking to a woman wants to know is whether she's attached what's what are her family connections uh, with a when you talk to a man whether or not he's married crops up uh, really very late in the conversation much before that are where you're from where you headed to and what is it that you do in the interim well you know what do you do uh, that is the question that uh, those are the three questions. So, uh, yeah, the biblical faiths of Judaism and Christianity tend to answer those uh, very, very simply. Right. Uh, where are we from as human beings? Well, right, you've got to be able to answer this question as a religion of how come we're on this little planet, this this negligible speck of dust in a remote uh, solar system on the corner of a lost galaxy. Uh, it's 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 really a bizarre kind of thing, and and as uh, as we've often spoken about on the program, in spite of the fact that statistically you'd say that we have to have encountered thousands of other 
planets where similar development of ta has taken place, uh, to the present we haven't. And that is an in incredibly disturbing thing to, uh, to, to people who professionally contemplate these ideas. So, um, you know, where, according to uh, Judeo-Christian ethics where, and, and belief systems, where do we come from? It's very simple, right? A, a good and loving God created us in his image and he put us here. Okay, fine. How about uh, where are we headed to? Well, again, uh, I think both Jews and Christians would agree on some uh, formulation of this answer. Uh, they'd probably have to sit down and chat about it for a little bit and, uh, and, and work on it. But basically, you know, on, on some great day of God's choosing, a glorious redemption takes place and humanity moves on to a, a new level of connection with the Creator, something like that. Uh, and what are we supposed to be doing in the interim? We're supposed to be uh, furthering God's plans for his kingdom on earth. In, in, again, uh, play with the words a little bit, if you like, but uh, no Jew and no Christian would have any confusion at all about what the answer to that third question is. And again, if you, if you have these three things in place, uh, that pretty much defines a religion. Um, when we come back, let me show you what we... Uh, what we have when it comes to one of the most uh, prof most active religions in the United States of America, and one uh, that, contrary to the Constitution, gains enormous governmental support, and that is the religion of secular fundamentalism. Meanwhile, the website, as always, is rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, the, uh, the resource I draw your attention to for a possible transaction between us today is Day for Atonement. And uh, you'll, you, you can read about it. I won't take time now, but you can read about it on the website, Day for Atonement at RabbiDanielLappin.com. And it's, it's um, significant, I think, just because uh, I, this particular show is dated, this, this show airs just after the Jewish holiday of Rosh Hashanah in the year 5778, um, which is, of course, late 2017, uh, September 2017. But with the holiday of New Year or Rosh Hashanah just passed, um, the, uh, the, the next holiday on the, on the calendar in just a few days' time is Yom Kippur, the, the Day of Atonement. And this audio CD uh, gives some of the, the deeper and more universal aspects of what atonement is all about and what it really does mean. Uh, we also have uh, a couple of uh, uh, new videos on the website that address the, uh, the, 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 the idea of some of these biblical festivals for those of you who are interested. Okay, quick break. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and I'll be right back with you. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi everybody and welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show where your rabbi devotes himself to raising anybody from despair and dependency up to dignity and discipline. Uh, that's the secret of building a life purposefully. And uh, we talk about that and a whole lot of other things, but right now, uh, focusing on the reality that progressive politics is actually a religion. It's not a political system. Uh, it's not a political ideology. It's not just another way of looking at politics. Not at all. Not at all. It is at its root a religion. And uh, in the last segment, what I tried to do was to give you the definition of a religion. I'm now going to use that definition and apply it to the world of progressive politics. Uh, the political system that I call the religion 
of secular fundamentalism. And uh, yes, it, it is a religion with a lot of fundamentalists, and it is a religion of secularism. Um, let's first of all ask ourselves, does it have a deity? And um, I think it does. I think it has a deity that has surfaced many times before in the long story of, of human civilization, and that is the, the deity of, of nature, pantheism, um, the environment. This is a god, or, or the earth, and it is a, 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 a god for huge numbers of people, not only in the United States, but also in, uh, in Europe. It is very much a god. It is very explicitly identified. People speak about it all the time. And the second requirement is uh, that it must require, it must demand certain behavior from you for it to be a religion. And sure enough, uh, you know, Allah uh, demands certain behavior from Muslims that, that includes uh, killing uh, infidels. Um, uh, Judaism and Christianity uh, both have uh, behaviors um, demanded from their adherents by the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, don't for a moment think that the religion of secular fundamentalism's God, you know, pantheism, the nature, the environment, the, the earth, there are many different names for their God, just as there are many different names for the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, right? In, in the Hebrew, there are a number of different names, possibly as many as 72, but that would take us into a different conversation. Right now, uh, at any rate, we know, we see that uh, in the, um, uh, in, even in the story of creation, in the first few chapters of Genesis, we find the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, referred to as God, the Lord, etc. And in Hebrew, those are specific words. Anyways, not, not for now. Point being that it's perfectly normal for a God to be known by a number of different names. That doesn't make it different gods. It's just a God known by a number of different names where each name highlights a different aspect of the God. And the religion of secular fundamentalism in this respect obviously is no different. It's, you know, it's the earth, it's the environment, it's nature, it's whatever it is. But, uh, but that we all know exactly what it's talking about. Does it, num item number two is, does it demand specific behavior? You bet it does. It requires that you don't ask your hotel to replace your linen and towels every day. Uh, it requires that you don't use a lot of uh, gasoline and you must drive an electrical car. That's one of the sacred sacraments of secular fundamentalism is you must drive an electric car. And there's so many others. Uh, I would say that there are probably more commandments in the religion of secular fundamentalism than there are in the Torah. Um, you know, the Torah has only 613 commandments. I'm sure there are considerably more than that in the religion of secular fundamentalism. And then finally, uh, in order to be a religion, it has to answer the three existential questions of life. Where did we come from? Where are we headed? And what are we supposed to be doing in between? And uh, sure enough, it does exactly those things as well. How does secular fundamentalism ask where we came from? Very simple. And by the way, this is treated as uh, doctrine, and uh, heretics are, are punished severely. Uh, we, are, uh, we are here, says secular fundamentalism, because um, primitive protoplasm over the course of many, many years uh, changed and became turned into plumbers and proctologists. Uh, primitive protoplasm uh, became Bach and Beethoven. Uh, primitive protoplasm became uh, authors and uh, car mechanics. All of that came about just through a lengthy process of methane gases being struck by electricity and, uh, and the process of uh, natural selection that produced everything we see today from absolute nothing at all. In other words, uh, in a process of unaided materialistic evolution, nothing became something. Um, and, and that is doctrinaire. So much so that uh, 
there are many high priests of secular fundamentalism who get so agitated when um, people want to discuss a divine origin of the universe that they launch lawsuits. And so you have the bizarre sight of secular fundamentalist high priests in New York uh, literally taking parishes in Louisiana to court because the schools in that parish uh, teach the alternative religion uh, explanation of how we came to be here, namely that the good Lord created us in his image and put us here. Um, only a religion treats dissenters as heretics. Uh, a science looks at dissenters as valuable collaborators and colleagues. We're happy that you dissent, and we want to now, since we are in desirous of pursuing the truth, uh, we want to explore. We'll do experiments to see, are you right? Am I right? In the world of science, dissenters are welcomed. But in the world of religion, dissenters are treated as heretics. And so... Uh, in the religion of secular fundamentalism, anybody who denies that particular explanation of the origin of human beings on this planet um, is treated very severely. Uh, it stops short of burning them at the stake, but it does include uh, stripping them of their livelihood, getting them fired, in, particularly in the academic environment. Uh, the, the force of the religion of secular fundamentalism is enormous because it's managed to co-opt the state. In gross violation of the Constitution, the state does support the religion of secular fundamentalism, and it supports it very strongly. The, um, the second answer that a religion, to be a religion, has to give is the answer of where are we headed to? And once again, uh, whereas uh, Judeo-Christian faiths speak of a, and, and believe in a glorious future where God will come to the rescue of mankind, uh, secular fundamentalism obviously believes that since there is no God and it's not gonna, he's not going to come to the rescue of mankind, obviously the uh, end of the story has to be gruesome and horrible and terrible. And so the religion of secular fundamentalism creates all kinds of scenarios for the end of days. Uh, years and years ago, it used to be nuclear winter and the, and the world is cooling off. By the way, uh, you know, this, this is not so long ago as to be outside the memory range of, of I'm sure, many listeners. Uh, for younger people, you're probably going to raise your eyebrows in amazement and say, what, did people really once believe that the world was cooling off and we were all going to be heading to another ice age? Yes, absolutely. Uh, not long ago at all. They did. It doesn't matter because in secular fundamentalism, the end of the story has to be gloom and hopelessness and disaster and calamity. That's what it's all about. It's uh, climate, global warming, climate change. Uh, we're going to run out of space and we're all going to die in a rising tide of disposable diapers because we're using up space. Um, one of the high priests of secular fundamentalism is a professor at Stanford University, Paul Ehrlich, who um, in the 60s and early 70s wrote about how uh, all, hu all humanity is going to hit a time of terrible starvation. Millions of people, including Americans, will die of starvation before the 21st century, by the way. He has already been proven wrong, and he's still teaching in the Sanctum Sanctorum of Stanford University. Why? Because it's not about science. It's about religion. And uh, there have been many, many, you know, William Miller uh, was in the 19th century upstate New York, uh, gathered huge numbers of people um, in fields to listen to speeches and to welcome the end of days. And when the end of days didn't happen on the date he specified, that didn't destroy the religion. Uh, it just it just changed things around a little bit. That's how it is with religions. And uh, when Paul Ehrlich made a prediction that um, how soon doom would strike humanity, uh, he didn't lose his job. He's still teaching at Stanford in spite of the fact, well, because it's not about science. It's about a religion. And the religion of secular fundamentalism insists, as it must, that the end of humanity is doom and gloom terror and hopelessness. They even make religious movies, by the way. Look this one up. It's, uh, it's not been in theaters for years, but you'll catch it on reruns on late-night television. Um, and it was called Armageddon. It was about a meteorite that was hurtling towards the Earth that was going to destroy the Earth. 
any movies about the end of days that destruction are coming and even by the way i suspect zombie movies are probably also a religious in nature but the uh, armageddon uh, had saint bruce willis saving humanity and uh, and, th and that's the nature of religious movies um, the third question religions have to answer is what are we supposed to be doing between our arrival and our departure and the answer obviously is trying to avert the um, dangers of question number two um, whether now it's climate change used to be global warming whatever it is it makes absolutely no difference uh, it's not about science uh, even though they will cite 97 percent of scientists agree and it's all rubbish but it doesn't make any difference because we're talking about religious dogma we're not talking about science um, you can produce as many qualified and credible scientists of whom there is a huge number who um, who, who who utterly dispel the myth of climate change and global warming and many of them by the way have paid the price as heretics of not being burned at the stake but being professionally uh, cut off and having their funding removed it's a very serious business because when when you aggravate the religious authorities of the day uh, your life can really be impacted as people like Galileo and many many other great scientists of the past discovered well today many great scientists are being severely penalized for denying as to use the language of the religion of secular fundamental they are deniers <laughs> what what scientific community has ever called somebody who disagrees with a theory a denier right but that's because it's not about science. It's about a religion. And uh, so what is the, uh, what do we, uh, the, the third, the third uh, answer? Yeah, you've got to be working in any way you can to avert the dangers of answer number two. You've got to fight global warming. You've got to fight shortage. And that's another thing, by the way. One of the doctrines of secular fundamentalism is you have to recycle. That's a sacred sacrament because there's shortage everywhere. Needless to say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a God of enormous abundance. Uh, the God of secular fundamentalism is a shrinking God of shortage, angry at humanity, always trying to diminish uh, the ability of human beings to enjoy the abundance that is available. So... Um, uh, you've, you've got to do all of these things uh, you've got to turn not to the big G of God but to the little G of government because many things that have to be done in order to avert the terrors and dangers of answer number two are too much for an individual to do uh, your children are being indoctrinated at government indoctrination camps otherwise known as public schools to um, to buy into this and to be part of it and to report their parents who are not recycling and doing enough in many jurisdictions uh, seattle just had a lawsuit about this many jurisdictions they dispatch religious police to check your garbage to make sure you are putting the recycling things in the right containers really I, th this sounds ridiculous right i mean you thought only in iran do religious police go around checking up on people no seattle also and many other jurisdictions around the country as well um i there is no question about it uh, re secular fundamentalism progressive politics a religion not in any way a uh, political theory or political view not at all um okay so um that then uh explains the, the the whole point about secular fundamentalism the politics of the left being a religion when we come back uh, we have an interesting thing i'm interviewing a woman called judy guru now how often do i interview people on this show right not very often at all but um, I did this time. Why? Well, because she gave me uh, an unusual gift, and that is seeing myself through someone else's eyes. Self-awareness is an enormous challenge, and uh, the, the tendency of our egos to overwhelm our ability to see ourselves is, is almost universal. But uh, Judy Grun is a, a young woman who I first met um, oh, gosh, over 20 years ago, who um, she was an ardent Berkeley University trained left wing feminist. And uh, she had met a very fine young man who was not only a friend of mine, but he was also a member of my synagogue in California. And he, um, over a period of time, 
He had told me about her, and I, I must confess to my embarrassment today, I told him several times, get rid of her, kick her to the curb. It's just not worth it. Um, you could just spend your, your whole life is going to be involved in arguments and debates. That's not what you need in a wife. And, uh, but he persisted, and he, he brought her to uh, one of the many Torah classes I taught every week. And I remember her arrival there, but even more importantly, she does in, in great detail. Uh, she's just written and published a book called The Skeptic and the Rabbi. Uh, you, uh, you can see it on our website. You can also see it uh, on Amazon or anywhere else you care to look at books. The Skeptic and the Rabbi by Judy Gruen. Anyways, um, I found the book absolutely fascinating. She'd asked me if I minded uh, her writing it, and I said, of course not. And um, she, she went ahead and, and tells the story of how a skeptic encountered faith for the first time and fell in love with it. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful story. Uh, she's a beautiful person. And um, I thought that you would like to meet her through this show. So when we come back, you will meet Judy Gruen, the author of The Skeptic and the Rabbi. Uh, that's it for, uh, for now. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. You want to save money in a place that gives you growth, control, and certainty without stock market risk or tax risk, and you want guarantees and you want it all tax-free. That's a tall order. But you can get all of that with properly designed, participating whole life insurance. Most people think life insurance pays after you're dead. That's true. But you can have tax-free access to use your life insurance while you're alive get the free book to find out how call 702-660-7000 revealing how the world really works this is rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network well we're connected with judy gruen the author of a book called the skeptic and the rabbi and by the time I have finished talking with you, Judy. I cannot imagine any outcome other than huge Niagara-like cascades of humanity will be pouring out of their houses and heading to the nearest bookstore. Or, of course, today going online and ordering that way. But uh, this is a book that I am wholeheartedly going to promote. I was a little nervous when you started work on this book. Uh, does that make sense to you? Yes, it does, because you knew that I was the skeptic and you were the rabbi. That's exactly right. And I was not in the least bit shocked to read on page 89, for Jeff's sake, that's your now husband, then your boyfriend, for Jeff's sake, I wanted to like Rabbi Lappin and this whole new world of Torah study and observance, but because the rabbi was both orthodox and a white South African, I assumed he was racist and sexist. So I also really didn't want to like him. <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I have to confess that I w went to Berkeley, and Berkeley is much in the news uh, literally today from Ben Shapiro's uh, speaking there last night. And uh, so I, I had some baggage there regarding your provenance, shall we say. I know, and uh, and I'm just joking because and I, I really know that uh, le leaving aside the, the white South Africa, I mean, that was just sheer bigotry, right? It was. I admit it. I, yeah. I, I mean, I because, uh, you know, imagine what you, you know, who today would write, well, I was going to, to visit the uh, this doctor, but I believe he was a black Somalian, so I was really <laughs> ready for an incompetent doctor, you know, or something like that. You, nobody would write a thing like that. No, but I, I was trying to put myself back in my... Oh, I remember. My, yeah. Yes. And I, I will confess something as well, which, and again, I, I'm sure this is not news to you, um, and that is that uh, when... Look, Jeff, I, I, I loved Jeff then as I do now. Your, your husband is an absolute prince of men, right? He is indeed. Yeah. 
And uh, so he's telling me about this girl. And there's always a but. Every time he tells me about you, uh, there's a big but. <laughs> and no, uh, you know, yeah, thank you. He'd, he'd love to bring you around. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. You know, I'd love to bring her for dinner. But it's just not the right time yet. But what is the right time? Christmas Eve? What do we have to wait for, you know? No, it's not that, you know. She's... She comes from a different background. Oh, what is she, Buddhist, Hindu? What is she? No, she's Jewish, but it's a different background. What are you talking about? Well, she's, she's a feminist. And it was really one of the first times I began to understand um, that feminism is another religion. And in many ways, it stands in opposition to conventional Jewish faith. But back then, it wasn't yet clear to me. And, uh, and then he, he brought you in and uh, introduced me. And I think, I think the first time we met was at the class, was it not at the Torah class? Oh, it, it absolutely was. I remember just my heart pounding in trepidation walking up the walkway into your home for the Shear, for yeah. the class. Well, uh, you are probably, again, you, you're such an incredibly self-aware person. And by the way, one of the, the, the two best things about this book, in my opinion, are one, it's searing honesty. It's, you, you, you are so self-aware and so honest. Uh, it really gives one a glimpse into, into you, the real person. And, and the other part is the humor, which is, it, it comes through on every single page. You, you find yourself chuckling. But, um, but so you probably won't be surprised to know that my recollection of that evening is that you were radiating such hostility. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, I, yes. I, I will admit From the third row up to where you were standing, uh, yes, I'm sorry, I apologize. No, no apology necessary. I must tell you, over the years, I seem to have been a, a lightning rod for <laughs> For that kind of reaction, very often indeed. So uh, it's uh, it's it's no it's no problem at all. Particularly since this particular story turned out so very well. So um, okay. So so back to the back to the beginning. Let's um, l let's just review. So the the book is called The Skeptic and the Rabbi. And of course, you, the author Judy Gruen, are you the skeptic? I'm the rabbi. And uh, but the book is, is much more than a story of uh, our meeting and becoming uh, the close friends that, that we are to the present day. Uh, the book is a, a picture not only of your journey into faith, but in many ways it's also a landscape of, um, a, a, of a general journey back into faith on, on the part of of a small but significant number of secularized Jews during the 70s and 80s, right? Yes, that is what I wanted it to be. And um, I just want to interject what you said a minute ago, which I appreciate so much that, uh, that it is a funny book also. There would have been no point in me writing a book about uh, returning to my uh, faith roots without because there were many other people who have done that and who can do it well. The trick for me, um, and as somebody who's written three humor books and has made a career in emphasizing humor, I wanted to show the humor in it and the ironies abounding um, because that would make my story more relatable and real. That was really uh, one of my primary goals. Yes. Well, I, I think that that certainly did succeed, and uh, and and it, it provides a uh, I think it provides a, a wonderful window into a, a reality of our times, which is that uh, in in both Judaism and Christianity there are people who came from uh, very little of a faith background who are moving seriously into a committed relationship with God, and. Uh, and one hears about it far more in the Christian communities just because of the numbers. But I really do think that your book is going to become and is rapidly becoming already the, the go-to volume for trying to get a feel for 
what was really going what is really going on inside the Jewish community because one of the things that my many Christian friends uh, are, are puzzled by and uh, I've often spoken about writing a book um, called you know the five things that Christians don't know about Jews but then it turned into the 10 things that Christians don't know about Jews. And now it's up to the 27 things that Christians don't know about Jews. And, um, and one of them is uh, they don't get, and this is what I want to, uh, to ask you to, to speak a little bit about, they, they don't get how it is that there are people who identify as Jews. They'll even beat their chests and speak of how proud they are of being Jews and of their Jewish heritage. And yet, they are sublimely clueless about the Torah. What's that all about? Oh, you know, Rabbi Lappin, I have personally been asked this question by some of my Christian readers, and I'm very proud and pleased that over the years I have developed um, a, a little bit of a following among uh, believing Christians, and they have they have point blank asked me this question: Why aren't more Jews, uh, you know, observing the Sabbath like like you are, and part of the story that I tell is the slide of assimilation that happened that is very much, um, you know, projected through my grandparents. My grandparents are a big part of the story. I love them all, but my European-born grandparents, my mother's parents, like so many of that generation, and admittedly they came over in the 1920s, they wanted the freedom of America. They wanted not to feel oppressed, which they, they did for, unfortunately, good reason back in Europe. But then, they let a lot of things slide because they wanted their children to be free, but the, uh, unfortunately they also let them become free uh, of knowledge. You, you started on this journey uh, where your awareness or your knowledge of Orthodox Jews um, w was limited, right? What, what did you know, what did you think? of Orthodox Jews when when you when you met Jeff what I, I had conflicting uh, um, opinions and I, I write this in one of the early sections of the book that uh, I lived in the same neighborhood where Jeff and I live now which is a Jewish neighborhood uh, but I was I was not keeping uh, the Sabbath and I would be driving on Saturday toward the mall uh, along one of the, the major boulevards where I would be passing uh, Orthodox Jews walking in in their Saturday best to sit to or from synagogue and I and I had I felt guilty even though I wasn't doing what they were doing I felt that what they were doing was important and there was always a part of me that felt that the Orthodox Jews it was so important that they were around, that they were kind of doing the heavy lifting, so to speak. Um, uh, you know, it was going to be a bridge too far for me, but I was glad somebody was doing it. I had just a, a deeply ingrained sense that this mattered. I just didn't want it to apply to me, right. which was a very, you know, selfish and shallow opinion. Right, right, right. Um, all right. Well, uh, Judy, what we're going to do is uh, leave it here for just a moment, and we will pick up very shortly as we continue uh, with with a, with the story of a book which I not I mean, everyone is going to enjoy. I, I naturally read it with a little more nervousness and anxiety than most because I feature in it, but um, but I think it's something everyone will enjoy. We're going to come back and talk a little more about it in just a moment. Okay. All right. All righty. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. The progressive movement is full of lies. Why do Americans keep falling for the deception? In his new book, Liars, Glenn Beck reveals the simple answer, fear. At our most basic level, we're all afraid of something, and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears. Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. 
Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Judy, thanks so much for continuing the conversation. Uh, your book, The Skeptic and the Rabbi, compelling, uh, searingly honest, a true glimpse into your heart, into your soul, into your personality, and uh, above all, into your fascinating story, uh, and a real, a real chuckle producer as one reads through it. Uh, there's so much of real life that one recognizes. So. Uh, you know, uh, something that Christians discover is that American culture, uh, and American culture is heavily Jewish, right? I mean, the, you think of some of the shows that have become hit sitcoms, shows like Seinfeld, for instance, and so many others, uh, where the Jewish influence is, is almost embarrassing. You know, you wonder... Who are these 1.3% of the American population who exert such influence that, uh, you know, that a farmer in Kansas is expected to know certain Yiddish words? I mean, it's, it's a very, very Jewish culture. Uh, most Christians do not know much about the, the sort of inner workings of the Jewish community, and that popular culture knows even less about what things are like in the Christian community. And when I say the Christian community, I'm speaking primarily about uh, Bible-believing Christians who are fervent and, and committed Christians. And mm -hmm. I remember the, the Washington Post uh, ran a story a, a number of years ago by a Jewish writer in which he described believing Christians as um, uneducated, poor, and easy to command. Oh, it's so patronizing. Oh. It was absolutely amazing. And uh, to their credit, the paper then published something I wrote in response to that, and uh, in which I just pointed a finger at the bigotry and the sheer ignorance. And then I also brought out the statistics that on average taken throughout the country, uh, believing Christians are way above the average in educational level, way above the average economically and among the most independent-minded people imaginable. Now, a lot of people don't get that last thing because the notion is that if you're religious, you're not independent, you just follow uh, something blindly. Well, right. uh, this was certainly something you grappled with. And, and here's what I'm, I'm thinking of specifically. Uh, you saw all these Orthodox Jews walking to synagogue on Saturday because they don't drive on the Shabbat, and you're on your way to the mall. And mm -hmm. after the mall, you'd have stopped uh, for, for lunch with a girlfriend somewhere at some restaurant. Mm -hmm. and, um, and if at that point you would have said to somebody, I know this wasn't on your radar, but had you said at that point, you know what, I'm thinking of uh, embracing Orthodox Judaism, and if the friend would have said to you, are you crazy? Uh, all of a sudden, Saturday vanishes from your schedule. You're not able to go to the mall with me on Saturday. All of a sudden, no more eating in the restaurants you and I both love. What on earth would you do all of that for? In hindsight, what's your answer? Those are, are, those are, true, those are true arguments. You, your, your life changes dramatically. You, um, you cannot eat where you like. Uh, you can't do what you like, not only on uh, Saturdays, but on, on every biblical festival. And, and for heaven's sake, if, if, we, uh, if we don't put too fine a point on it, you can't even sleep with your husband whenever you feel like it. Right. Well, there are so many answers to this, and that's one reason I, I wrote the book. But you know, some of the things that you had taught us uh, all those years ago, the line that I've quoted from you so many times, the the motto of rules, rituals, and restraints is such a, so elegantly put, but it also allows a framework of a different kind of a freedom. In other words, 
Sure. If I didn't uh, live this life and I had no restraints on uh, my religious ethics or religious obligations, I'm still really not free because I am going to be subject to the whims, the, the ever-changing whims of the society telling me, you know, uh, eat this today, don't eat that tomorrow, have this kind of relationship today, have that kind of relationship tomorrow. That's not really free either, is it? Because it leads to so much confusion. So it's true, as an Orthodox Jew, we have a lot of rules. We do, there's no sense in denying that. And sometimes it can seem like, oh really, do I have to do this now? But if you have, if you take the time to really learn what it's all about and have the context for it and to understand that this is really ultimately about a relationship with God, it makes sense and it's not only doable, but it is it is life affirming and and beautiful and you were a berkeley educated feminist uh you're you're no slouch in the academic department um during your journey into faith which is now a couple of decades old uh have there ever been times where you've had to say to yourself you know, I I, I I can't wrap my mind around this one. This this one this one is just a, a puzzling thing to me. Uh, I'm I'm going to go along with it because I'm 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 on the journey. But it just you know this rule, this regulation, um, this aspect of the kosher laws or whatever it is, I, it just doesn't work for me. Yes, and in fact, it's one of the chapters in my book where. Um, as, as you know, of course, um, married women are expected to cover their hair in public. I could not abide that. I was obsessed by that mitzvah, by that commandment, and I had told Jeff over and over again, sorry, I am not doing that. I cannot do it. Yeah, I remember him telling me that too. And I didn't do it for a number of years, and what finally got to me the, the funny thing was I wanted to want to do it, but I couldn't. It was just one of those uh, bridges too far. But then our eldest son, Avi, was three years old. And as a little boy at three years old, he was wearing a yarmulke. And he was wearing the, um, the little tzitzit garment. And we expected him to do that, and I couldn't take it anymore. I thought to myself, you're expecting a three-year-old boy to remember to keep his hair, his head covered with the yarmulke, but you're not doing, you know, your mitzvah? How long is it gonna be before he asks you, mommy, you know, why are the other mommies, you know, covering their hair and you're not? And, and that just really got to me, and I thought, you know something, I, I, I don't understand it all, I may not like it, uh, but I'm going to do it, but I kept trying to understand it better so that I wouldn't be resentful. Because if you're doing something under duress only, it's not going to work. And fortunately, over time, I, I made much more peace with it. Can I say it's my favorite mitzvah? No, but I can say that I'm glad that I rose to the occasion. Yeah, yeah. Um, why do you think it is, and uh, I'm sure you've noticed this as I do, that Muslim women uh, have absolutely no hesitation in not only appearing in public in, uh, with their head coverings on, but actually being uh, quite inflammatory about it and quite assertive about it. Um, I remember there was an issue recently at a DMV for a driver's license picture. Uh, right. She didn't, you know, she wasn't talking about covering her face. That's a real issue. But she, the, the clerk didn't want her to cover her hair, and she just, she wasn't backing down. Um, why is it that Muslim women seem to be so much more uh, assertive and confident in this particular area of covering the hair of uh, of, a, of a married woman like that than we do in our faith? Oh, gosh, I don't know. It, uh, that's an impossible question for me to try and get inside the head uh, of a Muslim woman. First of all, I'd have to get through the, the burqa, and I uh, don't know how I would do that. <laughs> I, I really, I, I don't know. I really don't know. I know that um, 
on Facebook, I have recently gotten involved or joined a few uh, private groups that are comprised mostly of Orthodox Jewish women where they speak very openly uh, about a lot of issues that, that are pertinent only to them. And I see that there there is just a huge amount of diversity of opinion uh, and certainly diversity in terms of level of uh, comfort and even love of doing certain of, of the commandments um, and I guess that's to be expected you know we're, we're a complicated people Jews are and uh, there's a lot that that God expects from us um, I guess we are all doing the best we can but um, I believe that you know it's a relationship and the more that we give to that relationship with god the, the more we get back but i'm sorry I, can, I can't answer your question better i just don't know um you know it's just interesting because uh i must i must tell you when i have to pray uh at an airport or something because the the sun is going down and you know and my prayers you know i, I mean i can do an afternoon prayer in about 90 seconds or something you know i mean it's not it's not a big deal but but i i must say i still feel after all these years i still feel a little self-conscious and i every now and then i get taught a lesson because you know not 10 yards from me uh, a muslim guy flings down a little rug plonks himself on the ground puts his forehead on the floor and remains prostrated for for five minutes couldn't care less what anybody thinks so um, it, mm -hmm. it's kind of interesting to me. I think that we as Orthodox Jews have things that we can learn from the Muslims just as we have things we can learn from, from religious Christians too. I think that we have things to learn from, from each other, whether it's from uh, just being very confident in public about about who we are or perhaps with... Uh, with um, in the Christian world, the the way that families will sit down and, and study Bible together, I think that's a beautiful thing. We have things that, that we can look around and, and learn. Yeah, from absolutely. Um, okay, uh, quick break. Your your book, The Skeptic and the Rabbi, a fabulous read, and uh, particularly for for those people listening who are either uh, in a faith moment themselves, perhaps a faith transition, a faith journey, or you are uh, uh, trying to make sure that your children remain committed to the path that you are walking on. This book is, is not only fascinating, but it is also a very useful resource. And uh, you can get it on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, you can obviously also get it in every single bookstore in the country. It is very, very popular, and it's caught on incredibly quickly. Um, okay, till we pick up this conversation again, Judy, thanks so much. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Pat Gray. There's a movie out that you haven't seen? Because Whoa. movies, I, movies uh, you know, I like seeing the movies and watching them, mm -hmm. but I don't like leaving my home. <laughs> <laughs> you don't like leaving your couch. I don't sir. like That's, leaving my home. Is that because you need a crane to get out of it? Do they get to, like, take out a wall and crane you out of it? I see what is you that, did there. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not it at all. That's, that's not it? Oh, okay. I, just, I guess I misunderstood. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks so much for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, I hope you enjoyed hearing me talking with Judy Gruen, the author of The Skeptic and the Rabbi. Um, if you did, let me know, and uh, if enough of you enjoyed it, then uh, I will continue. I'll uh, talk to her a little bit more next week. Uh, if not, then I won't. But uh, if you if you liked it, I will. 
the book is an interesting book, and uh, you can read more about it on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, also on the website, I've got a couple of new videos having to do with the biblical festivals that uh, we are celebrating right at the present time. While I am preparing uh, this show, we are in the middle of the uh, high holiday period of the Jewish calendar, and naturally that, that impacts me. Uh, when I spoke earlier in the show about the fact that uh, part of the show's purpose is, is to help us all, in, including myself, uh, make, make us immune to despair and despondency and uplift us through the uh, methodologies of uh, dignity and discipline. That's really uh, an, an essential part of uh, what I believe my mission here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show is actually all about. But uh, at any rate, that is probably about as far as we can go for this particular show. And so I wish you all a, uh, a, a fantastic 5778, a, uh, a very healthy and productive and good year for, for each and every one of you. And, um, and uh, until next week, I'm afraid, uh, I have to say goodbye, wishing you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Till next week, God bless. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio.